We all get stuck inside ourselves sometimes, and sometimes we'll do anything to get out. This week on Selected Shorts, transforming who we are, or sharing dreams, literally, to find common ground. Stay with us. I'm Jane Kazmarek, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. While we all live as individuals, it's often our connections to others that help define us. Our shared realities help us to create family and community, but sometimes also represent shared illusions, shared anger, and shared fears. Our first story, Fairness, by Nigerian-born writer Chinella Operanta, powerfully reflects just such a dilemma. A young girl from a well-to-do Nigerian household is obsessed with the idea of having lighter skin. And it's an obsession shared by all the women in the story, from her mother to the household staff. Operanta draws class lines sharply, but then shows us how they are erased in the face of this longed-for reality. Operanta is the award-winning author of the short story collection Happiness Like Water and the novel Under the Udala Trees. Her many honors include two Lambda Literary Awards and an O. Henry Prize. Reading Fairness is the actor Chinasa Obwagu, known for her work in Mayor of Easttown, The Following, and From Nowhere. She's appeared in productions at the Public Theater, Playwrights Horizons, and Lincoln Center. We gather outside the classroom in the break between morning and afternoon lectures. All of us girls not blessed with skin the color of ripe papa. We stand there on the concrete steps, chewing ground nuts and meat pies. All of us with the same dark skin, matching like the uniforms we wear. All of us except Onyechi, of course, because her skin has now turned color, and we are eager to know how. It is the reason she stands with us, though she no longer belongs. She is now one of the others, one of the girls with fair skin. Clara looks at Onyechi, her eyes narrow, a suspicious look. Boma chuckles in disbelief. She claps her hands, her eyes widen. She exclaims, Chimo, my God, how fast the miracle. Onyechi shakes her head, tells us that it was no miracle at all. It is then that she tells us of the bleach. Boma chuckles again. I think of Enna, of returning home and telling her what Onyechi has said. I listen and nod, trying to catch every bit of the formula. Clara says, I don't believe it. Onyechi kisses the palm of her right hand and raises it high toward the sky. I swear to God, because she insists that she is not telling a lie. Our skin is the color not of ripe pawpaw peels, but of its seeds. We are thirsty for fairness. But even with her swearing, we are unconvinced, a little too disbelieving of what Onyechi has said. Hours later, I sit on a stool outside in the backyard of our house. I sit under the mango tree across from the hibiscus bush, 
Ekaite is at the far end of the backyard, where the clotheslines hang. She collects Papa's shirts from the line, a row of them, which wave in the breeze like misshapen flags. Even in the near darkness, I can see the yellowness of Akaite's skin, a natural yellow, not like Onyechi's or some of the other girls, not like Mama's. Enos sits with me, and at first we trace the lizards with our eyes. We watch as they race up and down the gate. We watch as they scurry over the gravel, over the patches of grass. When we are tired of watching, we dig the earth deep, seven pairs of holes in the ground, and one large one on each end of the seven pairs. We take turns tossing our pebbles into the holes. We remove the pebbles, also taking turns. We capture more and more of them until one of us wins. The game begins again. The sounds of car engines mix with the sounds of the crickets. It is late evening, and the sky is gray. Car headlights sneak through the spaces between the metal rods of the gate. The gray becomes a little less gray, a little like day. Still, mosquitoes swirl around, and I slap them, and I slap myself. And Enos stops with the game, unties one of the two rapas from around her waist, hands it to me. At the clothesline, Ekaite is slapping too. She is slapping even more than Eno and I. Her skirt only comes down to her knees. She is not wearing a rapa with which she can cover her legs. I say, they bite all of us the same. Eno says, no, they bite Ekaite more. Even the mosquitoes prefer fair skin. The words come out like a mutter. Her tone is something between anger and dejection. I imagine the flesh of a ripe pawpaw. It is not quite the shade of a kaite's skin, but it too is fair. I throw Enos rapa over my legs. Emmanuel walks by, carrying a bucket. Water trickles down the side. A chewing stick hangs from the side of his mouth. His lips curve into a crooked smile. He stops by a kaite. Maybe they share a joke. Because then comes the cracking of his laughter. And then hers surging, rising, then tapering into the night sounds at the very moment when it seems that they might become insufferable. I look at Enno. Enno frowns. Emmanuel pours the water out of the bucket at the corner of the compound where the sand dips into the earth like a sewer. The scent of chlorine billows in the air, and I think of Onyechi and her swearing. I exhume the memory of the morning break toss it about in my mind like a pebble in the air, as if to get a feel for its texture, its potential, its capacity for success. And then I tell it to Eno. When the sky grows black, I hand Eno back her wrapper and we enter the house. We go together to the bathroom. First, we pour the bleach into the bucket, only a quarter of the way full, Then we watch the water bubble out of the faucet. We inhale and exhale deeply, and the sound of our breathing is weirdly louder than the sound of the running water. We caress the buckets with our eyes, as if we are caressing our very hearts. The bucket fills. We turn the faucet off and gaze into the tub. We are still gazing when Ekaite calls Eno. Her voice booms down the corridor and Enna runs off, 
because she knows well that she should not be in the bathroom with me, because Enon knows that she must instead use the house girl's bathroom outside in the house girl's quarters in the far corner of the backyard. But mostly, when Ekaite calls, Enor runs off because dinner will be served in just an hour, and Enor will have to help in the preparation of it. At the dining table, Papa sits at the head, Mama by his side. The scent of egusi soup enters the kitchen. Mama picks up her spoon, looks into it, unscrews the tiny canister, still with the spoon in her hand. It is lavender, the canister, and the lipstick is a rich color, red like the hibiscus flower, and it rises from the canister slowly, steadily, like a lizard cautiously peeking out of a hole. Overhead, the ceiling fan rattles and buzzes. The air conditioner hums like soft snoring. In the kitchen, we hear the clang-clanging of Ekaite's and Enol's food preparation, of the pestle hitting the mortar, yam being pounded for the soup, Off and on, there is the sound of the running faucet. We listen to the clink of silverware on glass. I imagine the plates and utensils being set out on the granite countertop. And then I hear a sound, like the shutting of the fridge. That shiny, stainless steel door all the way from America. And I wonder if Ekaite ever takes the time to look at her reflection in the door. And if she does... Does she see herself in that superior way in which I imagine all fair people see themselves? A bowl of velvet tamarinds sits at the center of the table, a glass bowl in the shape of a dissected apple, its short glass stem leading to a small glass leaf. Mama got it on one of her business trips overseas. She returned from that trip with other things, too. Silk blouses from Macy's, some Chanel, BB, Coach, some Nike wear. The evening she returned, she tossed all the items in piles on her side of the bed. She tossed herself contentedly, too, on the bed, on a small area on Papa's side, the only remaining space. She held up some of the overseas items for me to see. One blouse she lifted up closer to me, held it to my chest. It was the yellow of a ripe pineapple, We'll lighten you up, she said. She tossed it to me. I didn't reach for it in time. It dropped to the floor. The first magazine arrived two weeks later. Cosmopolitan. Pale faces and pink lips decorated the cover. Women with hair the color of fresh corn. Perfect arches above their eyes. Next was glamour, then L. And every evening following that, Mama would sit on the parlor sofa for hours, flipping through the pages of the magazines, her eyes moving rapidly over and over the same pages as if she were studying hard for the jam, as if there were some fashion equivalent to those university exams. I stare at the dissected apple, at the velvet tamarinds in it. I imagine picking one of the tamarinds up, a small one, Something smaller than those old Kobo coins. Smaller than the tiniest one of them. Ekaite shuffles into the dining room, Anna close behind. They find themselves some space between me and the empty chair next to me. Ekaite sets the first tray down, three bowls of pounded yam. She lifts the first bowl out of the tray. 
She sets it on the placemat in front of Mama. Mama smiles at her, thanks her. Then, Mama says, Quick, quick, bring the soup. Ekaite hurries back to where Enol is standing, takes out a bowl of soup from Enol's tray, sets it in front of Mama. Mama says, Good girl, very good girl. The skin around Mama's eyes wrinkles from her deepening smile. Ekaite nods and does not smile back. Eno, by my side, is more than unsmiling, and I can hardly blame her. But then I remember the bucket in the bathroom, and I feel hope billowing in me, hope rising, the promise of relief. It is Eno who serves Papa and me our food. She puts our dishes of pounded yam and soup on our placemats, still unsmiling. Papa thanks her, but it is a thank you that lacks all the fawning that Mamas for Ekaete had. He thanks her in his quiet, aloof way, as if his mind is in his office or somewhere far from home. Mama waves Eno away. I watch her hand waving, the gold rings on her fingers, the bracelet that dangles from her wrist. I take in the yellowness of her hand. I think of the bucket in the bathroom, and I feel that hope again in me. Uzomaka, Mama says, when Eno and Ekaete have disappeared into the kitchen. You are looking very tattered today. Papa squints at her. I don't respond. It's no way to present yourself at the dinner table, she says. The words tumble out of her mouth, one connected to the other, and I imagine rolls of her pounded yam all lined up on her plate, no space between them. Like her words, I think that American way, one word tumbling into the next with no space between. Papa looks at me for a moment, taking me in as if for the first time in a long time. How was school today, he asks. Fine, I say. Mama says, a good week so far, a good month even. Imagine an entire month and no strike, surprising with the way those lecturers are always on strike. No, no strike so far, I say. In any case, Mama says, not to worry. She pauses. Arrangements are already being made. Papa shakes his head slightly, barely perceptible, but we both see, Mama and I. She needs a good education, Mama says to him, as if to counter the shaking of his head. She turns to me. You need a good education, she says. It is not a new idea, this one of a good education. But she has that serious look on her face, as if she is weighing it with that thoughtfulness that accompanies new ideas. That is what America will give you, she says. A solid education and no strikes. Imagine, with a degree from America, you can land a job with a big company here, or maybe even remain in America, land of opportunities. She smiles at me. Her smile is wide. Papa stuffs a roll of soup-covered pounded yam into his mouth. He keeps his eyes on me. Mama turns back to her food. She rolls her pounded yam, dips it into the bowl of soup, swallows. For a while, no one speaks. In the meantime, you can't walk around looking tattered the way you do, Shirt untucked, hair unbrushed. As for your face, you do well to dab some powder on. It will help brighten you up. Papa clears his throat. Mama turns to look at him. 
his eyes narrow at her. She starts to speak, but her words trail into a murmur and then into nothing at all. There is another silence. This time it is Mama who clears her throat. Then she turns to me. She says, Even Ekaite presents herself better than you do. The bottom line is that you could learn a little something from her, house girl or not. I roll my eyes and feel the heat rising in my cheeks. Very well-mannered, that one. She takes care of herself. Beautiful all around. It is not the first time she is saying this. I roll my eyes like I always do. Anna is pretty too, I counter. It is the first time I am countering mom on a kaite. I only intended to mutter it, but it comes out louder than a mutter. I look up to find mama glaring at me. I catch papa's eyes on me, a little sharper than before. Anna is pretty too, mama repeats, sing-songy, mockingly, foolish Anna, dummy Anna. She has to say dummy twice, because the first time it comes out too Nigerian, with the accent on the last syllable instead of on the first. She tells me that Anna is no comparison to Ekaite, not just where beauty is concerned. What a good housegirl Ekaite is, she says. She adds an unnecessary reminder that when Ekaite was around Enno's age, which is to say 14, the same age as me, Ekaite already knew how to make egusi and okra soup. And what tasty soups Ekaite made as early as 14. Even Ekaite's beans and yam, Mama continues, were the beans and yam of an expert at 14. The girl knows how to cook, she concludes. Just a good girl all around. She pauses. Anna is no comparison, no comparison at all. Papa clears his throat. They're both good girls, he says. He nods at me, smiles, a weak smile. In that brief moment, I wonder what he knows, whether he knows like I do that it's only bias the way Mama feels about Ekaite, whether he knows like I do that the reason for the bias is that Ekaite's face reminds her of the faces she sees on her magazines from abroad. Because, of course, Ekaite's complexion is light, and her nose is not as wide, and her lips not as thick as mine or Eno's. I look at him and wonder if he knows, like I do, that Mama doesn't go as far as saying these last bits because, of course, she'd feel a little shame in saying it. He dips his pounded yam into his soup. Mama does the same. I don't touch my food. Instead, I stare at the velvet tamarinds, and I remember the first time she came back with boxes of those creams. Esoterica, Malvet, Skin Success, Ambi. It was around the time the television commercials started advertising them, the fade creams. And we'd go to the Everyday Emporium, and there'd be stacks of them at the entrance, Neat pyramids of creams. It was around the time that the first set of girls in school started to grow lighter. Mama's friends, the darker ones, started to grow lighter too. Mama did not at first grow light with them. She was cautious. She'd only grow light if she had the best quality of creams, not just the brands they sold at the Everyday Emporium. She wanted first-rate, the kinds she knew America would have. And so she made the trip and returned with boxes of creams. Movet worked immediately for her. 
In just a few weeks, her skin had turned that shade of yellow. It worked for her knuckles, for her knees, yellow all around, uniform yellow, almost as bright as Ekaite's pawpaw skin. She insisted I use them too. With Mauvet, patches formed all over my skin, dark and light patches, like shadows on a wall. She insisted I stop. People would know, she said. Those dark knuckles and kneecaps and eyelids, people would surely know. We tried Esoterica next, a six-month regime. Three times a day, no progress at all. Skin success was no success. Same with Ambi. Not to worry, Mama said. They're always coming up with new products in America. Soon enough, we'll find something that works. We must have been on Ambi the day Ekaete walked in on us in the bathroom, not thinking that I was there. I should have been at school. She was carrying a pile of my clothes, washed and dried and folded for me. Ekaete looked at the containers of creams on my bed. Mama chuckled uncomfortably. Aya, Gawa, she said. Well, go ahead. Ekaete walked to my dresser. The drawers slid open and closed. Empty-handed now, she walked back toward the door. Mama chuckled again and said, Uzomaka here will soon be fair like you. Ekaite nodded. Yes, ma. There was a confused look on her face, as if she were wondering at the statement. Mama cleared her throat. Fair like me, too. Ekaite nodded again. Then she turned to Mama. She's fine the way she is. Mama shook her head. The door clicked closed. I tell Mama that I'm not feeling well. An upset stomach. I excuse myself from the table before Mama has a chance to respond. I carry my dishes to the kitchen where Enna is waiting for me. Ekaite sits on a stool close to the floor. I feel her eyes on me and on Enna. Inside the bathroom, the air is humid and smells clean, purified, a chemical kind of freshness. There is no lock on the door, but we make sure to close it behind us. Enna holds the towel and stands back. But I call her to me because I am again finding myself skeptical of the water and of the bleach. In my imagination, I see Clara's suspicious eyes and I hear Boma's disbelieving laugh. Fear catches me, and I think perhaps we should not bother. Perhaps we should just pour everything out. But then I hear Mama's voice saying, Foolish Enna, dummy Enna. I take the towel from Enna. You should go first, I say. It is a deceitful reason that I gave, but it is also true, because you're not supposed to be here. That way, you'll be already done by the time anyone comes to chase you out. Anna nods. She concedes straight away. She gets on her knees, bends her body over the wall of the bathtub so that her upper half hangs horizontally above the tub, so that her face is just above the bucket. We'll do only the face today, I say. Dip it in until you feel something like a tingle. She dips her face into the water. She stays that way for some time, holding her breath. Even if I'm not the one with my face submerged, it is hard for me to breathe. So much anticipation. 
Enal lifts her face. My back is starting to ache, and I don't feel anything. You have to do it for longer, I say. Stand up, stretch your back, but you have to try to stay longer. Enal stands up. She lifts her hands above her head in a stretch. She gets back down on her knees, places her face into the bucket again. Only get up when you feel the tingling, I say. Time passes. Do you feel it yet? The back of Enel's head moves from side to side, a shake with her face still in the water. More time passes. Not yet? The back of Enel's head moves again from side to side. Okay, come up. She lifts her face from the water first. She stands up. The color of her skin seems softer to my eyes, just a little lighter than before. I smile at her. It's working, I say, but we need to go full force. Okay, she says. Good. She watches as I pour the liquid from the bucket into the tub. We both watch as the water drains. We listen as it gurgles down the pipe. I take the bucket out of the tub, place it in the corner of the bathroom by the sink. The bath bowl is sitting in the sink. I pick it up, hold it above the tub, pour the bleach straight into it. I get down on my knees, call Enel to my side, tell her to place her face into the bowl. She does. Only a little time passes and then she screams, and her scream billows in the bathroom, fills up every tiny bit of the room, and I am dizzy with claustrophobia. Then there is the thud and splash of the bowl in the tub. Then there is the thud of the door slamming into the wall. Ekaite rushes toward us, sees that it is Eno who is in pain. She reaches her hand out to Eno, holds Eno's face in her palms. Eno screams, twists her face. Her cheeks contort as if she is sucking in air. She screams and screams. I feel the pain in my own face. Ekaite looks as if she feels it too, and for a moment I think I see tears forming in her eyes. Papa looms in the doorway, then enters the bathroom. He looks fiercely at me. He asks, What did you do to her? What did you do? In the doorway I see Mama just watching, her eyes flicking this way and that. What did you do? Papa asks. I turn to him, pleading, wanting desperately to make my case, but I don't find the words. I turn to Mama. I beg her to explain. She looks blankly at me, a little confusion in her eyes. I stand in the middle of them, frozen with something like fear, something not quite guilt. By then, even Emmanuel has made his way into the house, abandoning his post at the gate. He stands just behind Mama, and his peering eyes seem to ask me the same question. What did you do? My legs feel weak. I turn to Enna. I smile at her. I think of Mama with her yellow skin, with her creams. Don't worry, I say. We'll find something that works. Enna screams. They leave the bathroom quickly then, all of them. Ekaite and Papa leading Enna. The door crashes closed behind them. Their voices become increasingly distant, still frenzied. I blink my eyes as if to blink myself awake. Days later, 
when the scabs start to form. I imagine peeling them off like the hard shell of the velvet tamarind. Enos' flesh underneath the scabs is a pinkish yellow, like the tamarind pulp, only a little like a ripe papa peel. And even if I know that this scabby fairness of hers is born of injury, a temporary fairness of skinless flesh, patchy and ugly in its patchiness, I think how close she has come to having skin like Onyechi's. And I feel something like envy in me, because what she has wound up with is fairness after all. Fairness, if only for a while. That was Chinasa Obwagu performing Fairness by Chinello Operanta. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. Operanta does a wonderful job of linking her different characters through this obsession with skin tone and then contrasts it with the vivid colors, fruits, vegetables, and plants that are all around them. It's as if they can't really see themselves or their world. When we return, living in someone else's dream... You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. Each week, our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. Shared realities is the theme of this show. And in Rachel Simon's eerie, little nightmares, little dreams, they are shared to the max. The story is from Simon's collection of the same name. She is also the author of the novels The Story of Beautiful Girl and Riding the Bus with My Sister among other works. You think you'd be pretty close after 53 years of marriage, but the husband in Little Nightmares, Little Dreams wants to share everything with his wife, including their dreams. He thinks it will bring them closer. She fears learning something she doesn't want to know. This intriguing story is from our archives and read by the wonderful actor who I consider my mentor, Maria Tucci. Her long career includes dozens of Broadway and off-Broadway productions, among them The Rose Tattoo, The Little Foxes, Mary Stewart, and Collected Stories. And here she is reading Little Nightmares, Little Dreams. And now, he wants us to share our dreams. Not just talk about them in the morning over coffee like we usually do, He means we should dream them together at the same time. Try doing it this very afternoon. I say to him, Fabian, isn't it enough we've been married 53 years? (laughs) That we've known no one in a biblical way but each other, and we've always made a point of having a real conversation every night in bed. That sounds about as close as any two people can get. 
doctor you've been seeing, did he put something funny into one of those pills? No, Fabian says, and he lowers his teacup to the saucer. He's used saucer since the day we were married. I like how he respects the furniture. Even now that he's retired, sitting around eating cream cheese sandwiches and listening to talk shows on the radio, he never leaves a ring on the wood. Not even after he's bought a can of soda on the way back from the doctor, and when he makes it up the front steps, all he can do is fall into the nearest chair. Even then, he remembers to use a coaster. He says, Elsie, maybe there are ways to get even closer. Wouldn't that be something? Dreaming together? Yeah, it'd be something. And I think, I know how we can manage it. I've been doing some reading. Seems like it might be a matter of physical position and will. I look at him and smile and shake my head. Come on, Elsie. It'll be easy. It'll be worth it. This is what he said about all his get-close ideas, and he's been pushing them since the night he carried me over the threshold. First, it was doing the marital act with the lights on. This wasn't too hard for me, as I was young and curious about the curves and angles of the human body that I'd never been privileged to see before. Then, it was using the commode with the door open. I resisted this. Till I started shuffling diapers like stacks of soiled playing cards, and after that, who can be modest? It's no longer a secret what happens at the far end of our intestines. And, of course, those talks at night. His idea. And a good one, too, I came to see. Those talks kept us linked all through the problems of loud music and sibling wars and dreary wedding ceremonies and two home grandchildren. I used to wonder why it mattered so much to him to be close. This was not what people I knew expected out of marriage. He couldn't have gotten the idea from the relatives who raised him. They were private people. They were good people, if a few too many in number. Once we took a vacation and drove by all his old homes. Our route looked like we'd dropped a handful of lentils on the map of the United States and they'd scattered to every corner. His only buddies, besides me, that is, have been my girlfriend's husbands. Married couples would come to our house and split apart the moment they stepped inside. The wives drawing me away to the kitchen so we could talk about our marriages and children. The husbands urging Fabian to come out front and see the new car or play a few rounds of gin rummy. Now, the few friends who visit come alone. They've all become widows. Fabian, for the last few years, took classes at the community center downtown. Legends of imaginary animals extraterrestrial influence in human history. I'd ask him, did you meet anyone? He'd shrug, yes, but they're too busy. Everyone's too busy. Recently, he stopped going, saying the doctor visits take enough out of him as it is. Now all he does is sit in the house or backyard, reading and listening to the radio. With such a life, I'd be lonely. But he says he doesn't need anyone except me. The closeness Fabian and I have had it satisfied us both. Till the last few months, that is. Suddenly, get-close ideas are all he thinks about. Why, just a few weeks ago, he set up two checkerboards, one in my sewing room upstairs and the other in his tool shed out back. My set had the red pieces, his the black. He said, you move one man every other night, and I go on the nights in between. How will I know where your men are, I asked. 
Marriage ESP, he said. <laughs> now, sitting beside me in the kitchen, he says, So, I found this dream book at that flea market where I got those embroidered handkerchiefs you like so much. And this book, it says there are ways to dream together. You know, you've also read books that said the sun was going to blink off at 6 a.m. Christmas Day three years ago. And then there was that whole Inca Power series you thought was so good. I know, I know. But those books, they didn't give me any ideas on how we can make our lives better. They were just interesting to think about. They were. This I had to admit. Fabian says, let me show you the book, then you can decide. He gets up and shuffles across the linoleum to the living room. The sun's coming through the window, lighting up his hair like a crown. Fabian's still the most handsome man I've ever seen. Though to be truthful, since I got to be able to tell time by the different ways my limbs creak during the day, I have been noticing younger men. <laughs> There's one that lives across the street. Divorced. Women, in and out of there, every few days like he keeps trying them on but can't find the one that suits him. He's good looking, this man. I almost want to put on rouge when I take out the garbage. <laughs> Still, other men, though I think about them, they're nothing to me. It's been so long since Fabian and I walked up that aisle. Then and now we keep each other from falling. That's what those talks before bed are about. Holding out our arms as we stumble through life together, working each other loose if one of us gets stuck in some bad situation. He comes back into the kitchen, lays the book on the table. It's dusty, smells like a basement, has mold crawling across the cover. The greatest intimacy. I have to put on my glasses. The words are hard to read, all squiggly like dripping batter. Like those posters Peggy used to pin on her wall back when she kept skipping school and staying in her room all day, smoking what kids did then. We later found out. Looks like one of those leery treatises, I say. Oh, don't knock it, Elsie, he says. Not everyone back then was a, was a, what did James used to call them? Airhead. Yeah, give it a chance. Don't fight this like you did some of my other ideas. The book crackles as I open it. Fabian lowers himself slowly to the chair. I picked this up because of that talk we had a few nights ago. Remember the talk where you said, how did you put it? that we could lay the maze of our minds on top of each other and they'd lock together just about perfectly. He was right, I had said that. Me and my mouth. I say things that sound grand and I don't mean them fully. <laughs> See, he'd been talking about entering us in this couple of the year contest the local park's planning to hold in a few weeks. Couples will sit under a tent and get asked questions to see how well they know each other. Like some game on TV, I'm told though we don't watch TV. Anyway, I said then we were a shoe-in if we entered. Being married so long, we don't even need to talk when it comes to things like what's for dinner and what our bodies are feeling and what mood we're in. The kinds of questions I expect they'd ask in that contest. Skin questions, as Peggy called them when she was in her anti-superficiality kick. Nothing that shows you really know someone, know the parts of him he can't put into words himself, maybe even know something before he does. Truth is, though I admire Fabian's get-close ideas, I'm of the opinion, and I do tell him this from time to time, but he likes to forget, that you have to have some private place inside you. Not for secrets necessarily, though that's nice too, but for a feeling of yourself and what it means to be alone on two legs instead of four. Because I'm no fool, I know it's all good now, 
But the time will come when one of us will be gone. And then, where will the survivor be? If our eyes have always been wheeze, I'll tell you, this is my nightmare. But I said what I said, and in marriage, the words you speak to your mate are never forgotten. So, you really want to do this, but I still don't even know if we're playing the same game of checkers. We'll look at each other's boards tomorrow, okay? And as for this dreaming stuff, it'll be fun. At the very least, we'll have a nice afternoon together in bed, and it's been a while since we've taken naps together, hasn't it? I think for a second, only about 45 years. So, we're long overdue. Well, what makes it happen? Some weird contraption? Hypnosis? Says here, and he flips through the book, that all you have to do is lie on your backs with the arms that meet in the middle hooked together and the arms on the sides propped up on the pillows. Says, doing it in daylight is good too because the sleep levels don't drop as low so it's more likely you can dream. Sounds a little too easy. Humor me. First tell me this, do you make up a dream together or does one of you start and then the other one joins in? It didn't go into that, he says, pushing his bifocals up his nose and turning to the dog-eared pages. Then he looks at me. Does it matter? Well, actually it might. For the past few weeks, Fabian's felt tired all day long. He keeps calling the doctor, who tells him to come by for more tests. They've tried five different kinds of medicines so far. I offer to go with him, but he's got too much pride to let me come along, and I don't push the issue. So when he leaves, I lie in the beach chair on the front porch and wait for him to return. And this is why dreaming together might matter. Once, while I was on that chair, I took a little nap and dreamt about the man across the street. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to admit it. In the dream, the man took me into his house and, well, I actually felt a little guilty when I woke up. But now... Sitting here across the table from Fabian, thinking about that dream, I realized once the clothes came off, I was no longer with the man across the street. I was with my husband. No, it doesn't matter, I say. I peer at him with his white hair and his white eyebrows, his brown eyes the color of coffee. Except for that dream with the man across the street, I don't do anything without Fabian at my side in my dreams. He's like the smell of my own body, the way my hair feels on my neck, something I don't think about. He's so much a part of me, and it's nice, because when my dreams fade into waking, he's next to me still. Sometimes I forget what Fabian looks like. I forget I'm there too. I can just feel us together. This is the opposite of how it was when we first met, my eyes following his lips as he spoke to me, following the skimming of his fingers over my porch railing as we stood in the brisk winter chill. I watched him so closely, I swear I could see his cells reproduce. When I turned away, it was only because my parents were calling me inside. In marriage, for years, this was how it went too. With each other, but separate, especially in our bed. Very me and he. Air all around us, between us. Two bodies touching self-consciously, even when in rhythm, hearing our own inner beat. Then, when did it happen? And how? The difference between me and Fabian just seemed to disappear. 
This even when we had to lock the door to keep the kids out. Or when Barbara ran away to Montana and we were so worried. This even through my 50s when my hormones surfed out of me on waves of sweat and I dried up inside my private parts. And I can remember when our last grandchild was born. We got off the phone and stretched out on the sofa. Even there, we fell into step. Didn't hear anything but our own breathing mixing with the sighing of the furnace. And this is how it is now, even when all we do is lie back and hold each other. Come on, he says, rising to his feet and tugging on the sleeve of my house dress. You wanted to try marijuana too after we read about it in Life magazine, I tell him. Look where we'd be now if we'd done that. He shrugs, as bad off as Louise, but as good as Peggy. Who can say what'll happen? He lowers his head and coughs. Please, do this for me. I tell him, all right, okay, I'll try it. Just this once. We go upstairs. I have to walk beside him on the steps so I can hold his elbow for support. I move slowly because lately he's had to. In our bedroom, he lowers the shade. The afternoon sun lights it up from behind and the shadows of branches and leaves lie across it like lace. I stand by the bed, he comes towards me. I raise my arms and he works my dress over my hips, belly, breasts, head. Then he peels off my underthings. I'm doing this to him too, unbuttoning, unbelting. We lie down. There's no blanket, just sheets, and we do not get under them. We breathe, the window shade taps against the sill. What does my body look like? My friends complain about theirs, about how fat or thin or weak they are, about how their imperfect bodies made them avoid intimacy when their husbands were alive. Me? Somehow I always forgot to notice my body when I'm with Fabian. And he's with me all the time. I'm never naked alone. Always we roll to face each other, but this time we don't. Instead, we each take one of the extra pillows at the top of the bed and fit it beneath our outside elbows. And now what do we do, I ask? We lock arms, he says. He lifts his left arm and hooks it into my right. What do you want to dream about, I ask him. I don't know. I just want to see what happens. We lie there, looking at the ceiling. A few cars buzz by outside. A little girl down the street calls for her friend. Then I start giggling. And in a moment, Fabian joins in. There we are, in bed, in this crazy position, laughing. I feel too silly to do this, I say. So do I, he says. Wouldn't you just die if the kids could see us? <laughs> this makes me laugh more. I go on like this for a while, the laughter rolling out of me, the bed trembling. I go on until I realize Fabian is no longer laughing with me, and then it occurs to me that I feel more nervous than silly. I'm panting as I laugh, the way a child does when he's lying. I close my eyes. Fabian is breathing deeply already. He twitches, that teetering on the edge of sleep twitch. I follow his breath like it's a broom sweeping my path clear. Time passes. I think I'll never get there. I jolt awake. I sink back asleep. And then finally, I fall asleep. The dream opens to me slowly. We're sitting on the sofa in our living room. At first, this dream feels no different from any other. How can I tell if Fabian is dreaming it too? Are you with me? I ask him. I think so, he says. 
but a look flashes across his face and then he adds, where are we? We're at home, I say, see? There's the lamp Louise made in school and the family photograph we got for our 50th anniversary and that fern you bought last week. Yes, he says, I see. Someone knocks on the front door, Fabian rises to answer, and since our arms are locked together, even in this dream, I must rise with him. Side by side, we make our way across the room. When we open the door, the porch is empty. But then Fabian says, is that a man or a woman? As he peers into the darkness. I'm not sure if I should tell him that I don't see anyone. I can feel him getting scared. What are you doing just standing there? He asks the invisible to me. Stranger, what do you want from me? I turn to Fabian. His eyes are wide and he's sweating. Is this your dream, I ask him, or is it mine? It's not my dream, he says, still staring ahead. It's my nightmare. My back tingles, and I look away from him, down at my legs. They're thick and netted with varicose veins. My eyes sweep up my body, and I see myself now as if I'm naked for the first time in my life. The dimples on my stomach, the wrinkles that fan down my breasts, my navel gaping like an open mouth. So this is how I look. I want to tell him this, and I raise my head to speak directly to him, but it is in that moment that I wake up. He's still beside me, breathing deeply. I look at his profile. I know every pore on that face. Lying there, watching him, this is what I feel. His nightmare was telling me something. Though maybe it was my nightmare, and all it was doing was making clear a fact I've suspected for the past few weeks but haven't wanted to face. And maybe I haven't faced it because he hasn't yet either. I unlock my arm from his and sit up. I could wake him to ask what he dreamt, see if it overlapped in any way with what I dreamt. I want to, but I can't bring myself to do that, not right now. I roll off the bed and throw on my dress. In the dying sunlight, I see his body, white and covered with hair, his love handles and the smiles under his knees. I leave the bedroom and close the door. Light no longer shines into the hallway, so it must be near dusk. I walk downstairs. I'm not sure why I don't go to my sewing room where his shirts sit in my basket, waiting for buttons. I've let them pile up for months now. I wonder if I can finish them in time. I go through the living room and the kitchen, out the back door. The sky is deep blue, receding into black at the tree line. I pat across the grass, noticing his sandals, a book he was reading, a glass half empty. When I reach the tool shed, I hear the crickets rising around me like hymns. It is dark inside the shed. I have to wave my arms in the air as I creep forward until one hand brushes against the hanging light bulb. I click it on. Everything, floor, tools, work table, is covered with sawdust, as it was the last time I was in here. When was that? At least a few years ago. But there's regular dust now, too. Thick on everything, even the air. Well, almost everything, not the checkerboard. I walk over and look down. A few of his checkers sit alongside the table. I guess he thought I'd jump them. I close my eyes and try to envision my whole board. 
that man here, that one there, those three kings, and when the picture is sharp, I open my eyes and lay it on top of the board in front of me. He was right. We can play the same game without even looking. We do have marriage, ESP. On the chair in front of the board is one of his shirts, a red flannel shirt that he wore all last winter. It has no dust on it. I pick it up and hold it to my face. It smells like a shirt. No, like his shirt. He does have a smell. I just never notice it. I forget and think it's me. I lift my dress over my head and drop it on the chair. Then I fit myself into his shirt. It is large. I don't button it. I wrap it around me like his arms. It is dark when I make my way across the yard, back into the house and upstairs. I feel my way along the wall. The house is so quiet when I think of him gone. In our room, I raise the shade and the moonlight beams in. He looks like he's covered with snow. As I sit on the bed, he groans and turns his head toward me. You're up, he says. Not for long, I say. What did you dream? Oh, he says, rubbing his eyes, rolling over to face the ceiling. Couldn't figure out where I was. He pauses for a moment. You were with me. I asked you where we were, and you said we were at home, but it didn't look like home to me. It looked like a combination of the houses I grew up in, familiar and strange at the same time. And then there was a knock on the door. I had to tug on your hand to get you up to answer it. I opened the door and there was someone or something, not really a person. I asked who it was and it wouldn't answer. It just stood there, staring. I wanted to lock it out, but when I turned to ask you to help me close the door, you were looking down, away from me. That thing, I was looking at it again, wanted me to step onto the porch. I didn't want to, but I couldn't walk away. All I could do was stand there like I was frozen. And then I realized that you weren't holding my hand anymore. You were gone. It was just me and it. And we stared at each other so long. My skin grows cold beneath his shirt. I grab it tighter around me. Fabian, I say, that was the dream I had. I knew we could do it, he says, but it doesn't sound happy. He takes hold of my hand. It scared me, Elsie. It made me feel like something terrible is going to happen. Did you feel that? Did you feel that in your dream? I want to reply that it won't be terrible, but I know it will, and I cannot be dishonest. After all, we have marriage ESP. I lie down on the bed and stroke his chest. His hair tickles my palm. I've not been aware of this, of him and me, for so long now. Fabian, I whisper, telling myself to remember how his hair feels beneath my hand, how his body feels next to mine. I'm sure we'll be all right.
Maria Tucci performed Little Nightmares, Little Dreams by Rachel Simon. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. This story really plays with the nature of intimacy, how much people resonate with each other in a shared life, what Simon calls marriage ESP. I was so moved listening to this story. It starts out in such a familiar, pedestrian tone. We know who these people are. They've been married for 53 years. They've got grandchildren. They're used to seeing each other without their clothes on, which was an element that I really, really appreciated about bodies and what happens as you grow older and love between people as they grow older. It starts getting really scary, and this is a beautiful masterly touch by the author because I found myself listening closer and closer and thinking that the ending was going to be very different from the beginning, and I was right. In fact, I went back and listened to the last seven minutes again and thought, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? And then I listened to it a third time and realized, yes, I was, and that I was just silenced, which is kind of rare for me, by the beauty of this story and the profound nature of of human beings and intimacy. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Jenny Falcon and Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodsons Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.